Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that, that's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton. Ready to launch a new career or not sure what to do after graduation? Rumpke is hiring for CDL driving trainees. We pay you to get your CDL license while working for us. Driver trainees receive $18 an hour, great benefits, and Rumpke will pay your CDL costs. Once you're a CDL driver, you can earn $1,000 to $1,300 a week and more than $10,000 in bonuses possible in your first year. Apply today and launch a lucrative career at Rumpke. Apply now at RumpkeCareers.com. Equal opportunity employer. Restrictions apply. From coast to coast, border to border, and around the world, you're going online with Bill Alexander. Laugh and learn while you listen to a brilliant display of radio. Online, online. with Bill Alexander. Bill Alexander. Hi, everyone. Yours truly, William Eric Alexander. All my friends call me Bill, and you're online with Bill Alexander here at WMCK.FM and also on Mixtape Radio International at www.mtri.co.uk. We're also on RadioRehoboth.com, 99.1 FM, WLDJFM 107.5, Newcastle, and we're also at SteelFM.org and Awakens.au. So welcome to the program on this uh, wonderful evening. And on the show tonight, we're going to try this again because the last time I had the gentleman on, we had some audio difficulties. So we're going to try it again tonight. Everything seems to be working okay. Made some changes, made some adjustments, and I think we have everything working right. On the phone line right now, I have Larry Ray Hard. Larry, how are you doing this evening? Hey, Bill. Hey, thanks a lot for having me back. I hey, I, I'm so glad you could do it again. Um, the last time I talked, we were having some audio difficulties, and I didn't feel that we were able to share your story um, to the fullest extent, so I wanted to get you back on the air again. Now, we're talking to you. You've written two books. Uh, the one is called The Path of the Devil, uh, Camino del Diablo, based on true events of a DEA agent and two private investigators, and also the Fighting My Greatest Enemy, Myself, which is an inspired true story by a DEA agent. So before we talk about That's the great. books, tell me a little bit about yourself. About myself, wow, there's not a lot. I When I say there's not a lot, it's just like probably about anybody else. I more or less I grew up in a family. I grew up in a, a place called uh, Tatersville, Kentucky, out on Big Plum Creek Road. A family of eight. Dad was a blue-collar. He worked two jobs and, uh, in the mornings and throughout the day as a welder. And at nighttime, uh, when he came home, uh, and on the weekends, he was a farmer. And, uh, and we worked on the farms there in, on Big Plum Creek Road. Okay. Um, I'm the oldest of eight children. That was a big family. <laughs> yes, yes. So uh, what years were you living in Kentucky? Were you growing up? Uh, we moved into a three-room house. Uh, we call it old Mr. Harry's house. Okay. It, uh, it was on the creek. When I say on the creek, that was in 1965, and it was cold. It was in December. And uh, it was a creek, right next to a creek. We had an outhouse. Uh, it was a it was a two-seater. In other words, you could sit there and talk to somebody while you're, you're getting with it. Right. And we had uh, an old supper welt, which we shared with our uncle, uh, JT, that lived across the road. And... Um, we thought we were, uh, of course, living at, in that home there. We had a coal stove and a wooden stove, but we had the backyard was our, our was our playground. It was the woods. It was huge, big farmlands. And so that was in 1965. I was 11 years old when we moved there. So you from from reading the book, uh, The Path of the Devil, it looks like in that time period you had pretty much of a normal childhood. Um, at least what we what we would think would be considered normal, living in a large family, living in rural Kentucky, not having a lot but having enough to get by, and being able to do that. And, of course, you being the oldest, getting into trouble as much as you could, and then going off into the yeah. military, right? Yeah, that is absolutely <laughs> correct. Uh, there was a, 
that was a lot of things going on there in my life, Bill. I was I was very fortunate that I had the right people behind me. Uh, Mom and Dad, of course, they had a lot on their hands, but I had a church that was uh, I got involved with. Uh, it was called the Plum Creek Church, and I didn't realize, but they played a very much importance in my life as I was growing up, and uh, it kept me close to uh, to God. Okay. And even though I was running from God because I was a young guy doing a lot of different things in life, you bet. So the whole story goes back to 1975, where the story starts, right? I uh, 1975. Oh, the, you're the DA, the path of the devil, right? Yes, that not for me, but for two agents that were working uh, narcotics in San Luis Obispo, Mexico, uh, Mexico, and uh, I was just a DA agent that came into that location uh, in that area out there on the border in uh, 1990. And uh, when I started hearing about the names of this cartel, the low cartel, the members, you know, it was just a DEA working cases, uh, many, many cases. But uh, when I heard how these brothers were involved in 1975 in trying to kill two uh, DEA agents, Don Ware and Roy Stevens, um, you know, I kept thinking, here it is, 1990, and these guys have been prosecuted, these brothers or the family. And, uh, and, of course, there was a lot of corruption I was dealing with. I'm not talking about down in Mexico. Right. I'm talking about Crooks at the Port of Entries. Okay. So, with everything going on, um, so, again, you're in your late teens, early 20s, and the late 70s. These guys had a run-in with the uh, Mexican cartel in 1975. Where do the two stories actually cross? Where did they cross paths at? They crossed paths when I got reassigned from uh, San Diego, California out into Yuma, Arizona, and from there, it's a desert, uh, beautiful little town. It's right on the border. It's real close to two borders, one in California called uh, Acadonis, Port of Entry, and the next one is San Luis, uh, Port of Entry. And uh, I just I was sent out there to start working some good cases, and I uh, was transferred, and the cases were awesome. I mean, the story explains the kind of cases I was working as a DA agent, target major traffickers. I mean, a lot of drugs that were coming out of Mexico, it is true. Even we speak today. I still have contacts with some of my friends in DEA, and there's more drugs coming across that border than it ever has been because of they're taking advantage of what's happened to our country. And uh, But at that time, DEA started focusing on the port of entries because of a large amount of drugs that was coming across, especially the heroin, the cocaine, and not so much methamphetamine at that time. Methamphetamine has been produced in large quantities here in the United States by um, uh, biker gangs, Hell Angels, and, okay. and other groups. So with that going on, you 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 ended up getting the case of working the uh, working it, and you also got involved with two um, private investigators. Now, is that common for an FBI or a DEA agent to work with outside law enforcement the way you did? Absolutely, but it's a different kind of relationship. This is kind of it was it was really rare and strange for DEA to get involved with uh, the PIs, private investigators, because, you know, with the, the DEA, FBI, or whatever agency, we have certain guidelines we have to follow. We just can't go out and and uh, and just shortcut, you know, do things without search warrants or, or whatever. Uh, a private citizen, uh, such as the PIs, or informants, confidential informants, we rely a lot of information on them, our concerned citizens. But the reason why the PIs got involved is because uh, I was doing a lot of work at the Port of Entry targeting these major semi-tractor-trailer trucks coming across with produce and furniture. And I knew from my informants, now I'm not talking about the PIs, private investigators. I, right. had, uh, I had informants working with me. Okay. And uh, with, with, those inf- with those informants you were working with, what information are they able to give you? Well, for example, I, you know, with DEA, I was given so much leadway where I can work a case where it will take time. You know, when you work the streets, you can go out and buy uh, small samples uh, of meth, coke, or whatever, and you really don't go very far in the investigation. It depends how much work you want to put into it. Uh, with this kind of case, uh, I knew it's going to take time, maybe two years, maybe three years for me to penetrate at the top. Because these cartel guys, these major guys at the top, they got too many people below them that do the street dealing, right. or the trafficking drugs into the United States. So with these informants, Bill, 
I had to really reach out and find someone that uh, that was a businessman, had a legit business, and that, that speaks Spanish. And of course, not from that location, or that area there, because of too much corruption there. And um, and so it took a while. And once I developed, you know, I just we got lucky. I told the CI, confidential informant, to make a phone call to the bad guy and pretend that you met him at a club down in Tijuana and you talked about girls, always about, always about sex and girls and, and so on, and, and, uh, and see if he, uh, uh, you know, would go for that. And he did. And once he got into this guy, this guy was, uh, he was real close to the top of the organization. And so they, he met, the conference report, met this guy several times, developed a trust, showed us his business, and then from there he finally met the guys that ran the cartel. Now, of course, during that time, you know, I'm working on other major investigations. Right. But this here, I was doing it for the two. I was so focused on because I want to do this. Not so. It's 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 way they went after uh, uh, Don and Roy, uh, the two D agents, and also what they had done in the past. I mean, Keith came arena. Uh, you know, while he was been tortured and killed, there was phone calls made into this cartel here at the port of entry or at the uh, south of the port port of entry in Mexico. Um, and so we had all this information, but they were protected. Every time DEA got close or FBI or any other agency that got close, uh, they would know about it. And so that took time for me to develop why they were so smart about knowing how Larry Hart and Larry Ray Harden or any other agents or, co- or police officers were that close. It's because of corruption. They had their own network of corruption at the port of entries. They had family members. They had their nieces. They had their nephews. And these niece and nephews that were police officers, United States police officers or federal agents, they have access to all the data records, okay? They, they can pretty well pull something up and say, wait a minute, has this guy ever been involved in narcotics? Or who's targeting my, let's say, my uncle okay. uh, down in Mexico or my nephew? Now, when, whenever, whenever this, when the case was being put together and the Murez brothers went after Don and Roy, were Don and Roy actually on their tail to bust them, or was this just uh, something that they knew that there were DEA agents in the area and they just wanted to take them out? Okay, we're talking 1975. The bad, the let's say I call the brothers the bad guys. Okay, the the, the brothers they weren't so well known at that time. They were just starting off uh, as brothers, you know, and in, in, in involved and in trying to set something up at the port of entry, get established there for the major cartels. Now, the DEA uh, knew at that time about these brothers, okay? They knew, but they were not the major targets of that investigation, and they were trying to buy some heroin sample uh, from an informant from one of the brothers' uh, mules or one of the traffickers. And, uh, of course, I'm talking about corruption again. They're down in Mexico, and they're working. And once you're down in Mexico, you know, people's going to find out there's DEA there or there's narcotic agent from the United States. We were allowed at that time to go down there. Even when I was in Yuma from in 1990 to 96, I spent a lot of time down in Mexico by myself. I went across that border. Uh, you know, of course, they know that I'm there I'm, uh, and so on. And, uh, but I never really felt threatened until I got close to them, until I threatened them. Because they didn't want to promise with DEA. But I spent some time down there by myself doing surveillance, getting license plate numbers, stopping to have a Coca Corona, which is a beer, and some uh, grilled chicken off the grill down in Mexico. Okay. And am I carrying a weapon? You bet I'm carrying weapons. Not one, but two. And uh, DEA back then, we we were given a lot of responsibility by the American people and Department of Justice to go after these major uh, traffickers. Not now, like today. Now, Our hands have been tied. With, with that going on, because you were over the border and you were doing a job, I take it just by listening to you that you had a target on your back. That for these cartels and these these these. Uh, Bad guys, as you say, if they would take a DEA agent out, that would actually boost their credibility, correct? No, that's not correct. Oh, really? Absolutely not correct. Oh, no, no. They don't want no problem. Uh, the time that I was in with DEA, and it's hopefully still that way, the day is that you did not kill a DEA agent or a law enforcement federal agent okay. or a Border Patrol, anybody federal, especially DEA. You know, I spent three years down in Columbia, okay? When one, one of my friends, an agent by the name of Frank Moreno, when he was killed there, a DEA agent, okay, the shooter, okay, that killed him had no idea that he was a DEA agent, okay? And when he found out, he was running for his life. He truly was running for his life throughout Colombia. 
they were trying to make it back to the United States because it was safer to get back to the United ah, States. Okay. And you believe that? It's so true, even today. But they do their killing down in Mexico, and they kill left and right, but yet they, want to, they, they try to get back to the United States and to their homes up here, and that way they feel more comfortable. Interesting. I would have never. I, I would have never thought that. Now, whenever you oh, went, yeah. whenever you would go get these guys, you would have to bring them back from Mexico or capture them in the United States so you could prosecute them. Correct? Absolutely. Especially, uh, uh, you know, people don't realize this, but in Mexico, it's against the law to carry a weapon. Uh, it's ninety-nine percent. It's it's very religious. It's Catholic, just like in Colombia or most of the Central and South America, and. Uh, you know, you go down across that border, you cannot take a weapon. If you do, you're going to be arrested okay. by the Mexican authorities. Uh, but DEA, uh, weeks of without, I mean, there's many times I went across that border. I just called and told my office, I said, look, I'm going, I'm going south. That means I'm going across the border. And I would never tell anybody at the port of entry, when I, when I, when I came back across into the United States, I would tell the, uh, the port of entry inspectors uh, or customs you know, they knew me by then because it was a small town. Right. And they would just they knew I was down there for a reason. And, uh, you know, and that was it. And no questions were asked. So the pipeline of getting drugs into this country, was it very elaborate? Or was it just uh, people just carrying it in the backs of trunks of cars across the uh, across the uh, the border? How, how was it getting in here? It depends on the drug. It depends if it's marijuana, heroin. Or cocaine, those are three. Now today it's methamphetamine. There's so many games they play with us. They know exactly. They're way ahead of us on this. Let me just mention this real quickly because uh, I experienced this twice. Uh, it's called discovery, okay? As okay. police officers, I need probable cause, PC, Bill. Bill, let's give you an example. You're trafficking in narcotics, okay? Someone say you're moving a lot of dope and so on. I just cannot take hearsay information. I can work on intelligence. But hearsay intelligence is not going to put you in jail, understand? I have to have facts, okay? I have to show the evidence, factual evidence, okay? And so there's a thing called discovery. Let's say that I arrest you because I have enough facts. All that reports, everything I've written about you and about your cartel, about how you traffic in, let's say, cocaine in the United States, all that is documented on paperwork, okay? Once we go to trial, the initial hearing, it's, the, it's called discovery, Okay. Right. You, Bill, have a right to see the evidence. Once we give you all that discovery, the whole world is going to see it. Right. The cartel. Everybody's going to see it down south. Why I say this? Because when I was in Mexico, I went to a prosecutor's office, another agent and I, and we sat there and I seen boxes. This was around 19, I want to say 1994, okay, 95, because I was targeting the, uh, the brothers, the Mraz. And I had his prosecutor helping me, this Mexican prosecutor. Okay. He showed me, he said, Agent Harden, take a look at this. In those boxes, Bill, there was names of officers, agents. Sometimes you see witness names. Who's going to, who's going to testify? You see informants, uh, not their numbers, but there's informants involved. You see the method of how Bill is trafficking dope in the United States. You see where Bill is getting his dope from, okay? All that is laid out. So we're always behind the drug cartel because they get everything from discovery. I've seen that in Mexico, and it, when I was in Colombia and Bogota, I've seen it again at one of Pablo Escobar's associates at his house. These are cops that are working all over the United States. When they make arrest, it becomes discovery, and everything's been released. And so that was just a constantly losing battle. But when I went after these guys, I didn't play around. I had my facts. And these two PIs, when you mentioned first how they got involved, because I was hitting they're, they got hired by this guy out of California, Los Angeles. This guy contacted his PI organization, said, private investigator, said, look, there's an agent out there in Yuma, okay, a DA agent. He's stopping my semi-tractor trailers, and he's going to try to find dope on there. If okay. he find dope, that's going to hurt my reputation as a furniture company, okay? And you bet I was inside those trucks, Bill. I was up inside onion trucks, uh, watermelon trucks, cantaloupe trucks, anything that's come across because that's how dope was coming across into the United States, even furniture. So, and uh, so that's when I met the two PIs. Did start the, working closely together. So the, 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 the furniture owner or whatever truck it came in on, did they know their trucks were being used to smuggle drugs across the border? Absolutely not. They had no idea what was been... These, these cartels was using everything at their means to get their dope across. 
they will use shrimp trucks. Shrimp trucks. That's the best way to smuggle anything in frozen shrimp, okay. frozen fish coming out of out of the sea of, out of the Gulf of Mexico or out of Baja California. Okay, they will use anything they can. But the reason why this this owner of this is called Manikilodoros, uh, their business that operated by owned by Americans, operated by the Mexican government down in Mexico, of course. It's it's like cheap labor. It's cheap labor because there's a lot of things you don't have to pay as you do the labor up here in the United States. Right. But when I start talking trucks, because I got information from informants, okay, that a truck's coming across and it's suspect is loaded. Now, I will use a canine. They're called drug-sniffing dogs. Right. I will use dogs, and they will alert to the truck. I didn't crawl on the trucks for the heck of it. Two things. I have an informant telling me the truck is loaded. We don't know what kind of drug, but there's drugs on that truck. Second thing, I will take a canine dog or canine, a, a narcotic dog from a customs agent or a border patrol agent, okay, and the dog will go around the truck, and he will alert. So I had two probable calls, one PC, probable calls, in a form, a confidential form, very reliable, it's been tested, okay, made cases from it before. And the second is that you've got a narcotic train, okay, and uh, so that's, that's two probable calls right there. And uh, I, w- I would tell the driver, the driver could say, hey, look, okay, but the driver never. When I showed my DEA credentials, I wanted, hey, I'm here, take a look inside your truck. They had no problem. And I did. I searched the trucks, trucks, but I never could find dope. The reason why I couldn't find dope, because the bad guys were one step ahead of me. So what you're saying is, is so wherever you were at, they were this stop right before you. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a small community, and I couldn't... I couldn't rely on too many people except the two PIs I worked with. But, you know, Randy Turkison is a retired a military. Jeff Pierce is another retired. They both, when I start testing these guys out, I realize they're not just a, just a, a normal PIs. These guys are very good at what they're doing. Okay. And I can really trust him, and I can count on these guys. I can count on these guys more than I can count on anybody else. And uh, so I worked with them very closely throughout the years. So the informants, when you spoke to these informants, were they not worried about their lives being in jeopardy because they were giving you information? Or were they doing no. it because they wanted to get out of what they were doing? Uh, no, no. These these are informants that that uh, enjoy what they're doing. You know, their past experience, they were involved in narcotics okay. and so on. They were moving cocaine or sniffing cocaine. Uh, I think because of the relationship... You know, you, you can have informants work with cops or, or, or whatever. They want to feel comfortable. They want to know they can trust that officer that can protect them and take care of okay. them, okay? And they like the thrill. And these, these informants, I mean, I didn't go out and just find informants, okay, that just someone's walking on the streets. I found people that I can rely and that can trust me and I can trust them because our lives depend on that. And, those, and I had two CIs. I developed two CIs, one that was, as I mentioned, very good at what he was doing. He had his own business. And the second one was his driver, okay, because he had to have a driver to protect him while he was down in Mexico. And both of them, both of them, one of them's dead now. He was killed uh, later on down in Ogales. He got involved in smuggling. I heard smuggling illegal aliens across the port of entry down there. Uh, but the other one, I don't know if he's still alive or not. It's been years. But these two guys went right to the top, okay? And when I, when I, when this book had talked about it, so – I had everything I need, Bill, everything. I had facts. I had video, not video, but I had audio. I had evidence. I had drugs. I had everything. And now I was ready to prosecute, and I laid the story out. It's all about corruption, both books. The last one, which is Fighting My Greatest Enemy, that is a spiritual journey because I'm still here. God spared my life, and I've seen enough where I wrote about these guys that that died. Uh, uh, Danny Elkins, Lieutenant Daly Elkins, Danny Elkins and Mike Crow. They were killed by a corrupted cop, uh, and I explained that in the book, how they were killed. And when I teach criminal justice to a class room of students that want to become cops, I talk about Danny. I talk about Mike. You know, I talk about these guys that lost their lives, you know, believing what they were doing. And, uh, and same what's going on today out here. People just don't get it. Majority of our law enforcement cops are out here on the streets. They're good people, Bill. I know I spent 24 years working with them. I mean, everybody that I worked with, you always got that one, just got that one, okay, that would take it too far. Right. But the majority of law enforcement, Bill, I just, people just don't get it. I mean, 
you know, you've got this, and I, I, I want to say this, this Black Lives Matter, I mean, they're, they're, it's been used. It's been totally used. I have seen so many uh, young uh, black men in projects, you know, fighting each other, killing each other, and yet when they need a police officer, they call for the guy in blue or call for DEA narcotic street team to come in and to help out. And, you know, when you fight evil, you've got to come after it, and people are going to get hurt. But every time someone, a minority, gets hurt by a police officer, it could be white or black or whatever, you know, there's a, they put a spin to that. The media, I mean, it's just, it's horrifying. And uh, what I see today, it's just, it's no different, uh, Bill, from 1975 when those two Asians, when they got, when they were down in Mexico, they were laying on the desert, they were laying out there in that dirt street, okay? They knew they were going to die, but nobody did not want to help them. Right. Nobody. They kept walking away from them. Today, in the United States of America, we have the same problem. Cops are getting hurt out there. What was the statistic someone gave me? Uh, it wasn't a FIBA, uh, FBI. Someone, somebody said, Larry, you got to tell them. You see right here, number of unarmed black men killed by police last year in 2019 was nine. Number of unarmed white men, 19. But here's, here's, the, here's the kicker, man. That was in, two, in 2019. 89 police officers were killed. 89, Bill. Mm. We're not talking about the ones that were injured and hurt. Right. And that was in 2019. Which is an unbelievable statistic. Uh, when you when you talk about corruption, you're t- I mean we don't I don't know if we realize what the corruption is, especially in the United States, because this stuff wouldn't be coming here unless there was someone backing it. Correct? Absolutely. Uh, that's absolutely that's why I wrote these books. I was pushed by two PIs to write this first book, The Path of the Devil. It has nothing to do with the devil. I, I mean, I name a mountain. It's called the Mountain in Yuma. It's, everybody knows this mountain. I can see it right now, and I guarantee it. Anybody living in Yuma or been there, they know the Camino Diablo. It's a mountain. It's a mountain that goes from Mexico, comes all the way up to Arizona. It was used by the natives of that back in the 18th century with a Spanish priest from Spain. Okay, they were being killed and slaughtered on the mule trains there because they're trying to make it into the missionaries in California. And it's still daily today. I mean, and I call it Camino Diablo. But when you read the book, the feedback I get say, wow, you know, Larry, I mean, Man, you can see it. You can see evil all over this. Absolutely, you can see evil. You know, when it comes to narcotics or alcohol, when a person's under the influence of that, everything changes. Their behavior, their, 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 their you know, they have no problem hurting other people. Right. You know, detecting and so on. So the corruption that you're dealing with in the United States, I mean, like you said, the 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 the, the furniture owner who had the two agents or hired the two um, PIs, he didn't know anything about it. He was trying to stop it. But were there other people that were bringing in product across that knew that their trucks were being used for smuggling? Absolutely. I mean, I, okay. You know, with corruption, I always told my wife the day I joined, I said, I told my wife, I said, Kathy, I said, listen, hon, if I ever get shot, because DEA, we are trained, and I don't say this, taxpayers put a lot of money into us in right. law enforcement. They want the best out there, okay? Not go out and just whacking people, but just to try to, to do something to, to curtail this, this drug that we have or this crime that we're having exploding right now. I was trained. I always told her, I said, if I ever get shot, it's going to be because a corrupted cop. It's going to be someone that's corrupted. You know, I felt very comfortable going after the bad guys. Always did, always have. I have no problem of going to face-to-face with a bad guy. Okay. Okay, because I feel so confident the way I was trained. But when you get a cop that you're working with or an agent, you know, DEA or somebody, it could be a federal agent. I, it happens. It happens all the time, you know. And there's always got that one person that's it's just bad he crossed the line or he was forced to cross that line because of the money or so on. But the book lays it out in corruption, Bill. Not so much. I knew how to deal with the corruption at the port of entry because I identified the immigration officers. I, I found them. I got them identified. Okay, I did with my informants and, uh, and and going down to the port of entry. But the ones I had problems with, Bill, it was this United States Attorney's Office, man, the Assistant U.S. Attorney's Office in Phoenix, and also the Attorney's Office down in in, uh, in uh, Yuma, Arizona. You know, people are not going to believe this. And I'm not talking to you, Bill, about this. When people read this book, they said it can't happen in America. Yes, it did. I'm telling you, it happened. And that's why I didn't want to write this book. But these two PIs and this 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 uh, and, and Diane Demille, 
uh, a great lady out of uh, Irvine, California. Uh, I'm sorry, out of Garden Grove. Uh, she, uh, she, she's the only one that we can find that will sit down with us and put this thing together for uh-huh. us because we're not writers. We, I mean, we're not authors. I'm not. I just wrote the facts on these books. And she put it together for us. And we put our stories together. And she's never done anything like this. And she's a strong believer. Um, you know, the podcast is doing very well. We, we don't, Just the other day, we shot over 150. You know, to me, it's a blessing that one person or someone just to take an opportunity to read it or listen to the podcast and, and, and write to me and tell me and say, you know what? He's seen it. I absolutely seen it. You know, I've seen it with my own eyes and, and the corruption I was dealing with. I didn't ask for this, Bill. You, you, hey, Bill, you said 1975. How in the world did a D agent like me, Larry Ray Hart, goes to Yuma in 1990 and start working a case that took place in 1975? There's a reason for it. And I, I tell you what, I, well, I know the reason for it. I was that person that's going to do something about it. And did I shake things up? You bet I shook things up. I could have, man, I could have really blown this out of water. If I got those brothers indicted down in Mexico, right. and they brag, they say they'd never be indicted. If I got them indicted and put cuffs on them, I, you know what? I would have got all the corrupted cops. I would have got all the corruption cops, agents, whatever, that's involved with these brothers, okay, because they were squealed. They were, they would talk so quickly, okay? And, uh, but I didn't get that chance to stop the corruption. I was transferred. I was asked to leave. Larry, we're going to take a brief time out, and then we'll come back with more about the uh, about the book and also about your career. So uh, we're going to step away for a brief moment. You're listening to Online with Bill Alexander here on multiple radio stations on iTalkNet Radio Network. Online with Bill Alexander is on WMCK.FM McKeesport, Mixtape Radio International at mtri.co.uk, 991radio Rehoboth.com, awakens.eu, steelfm.org, and 107.5 FM, WLDJ, Newcastle. And we're back online with Bill Alexander. And on the phone, we have Larry Ray Harden. Larry, we're talking about the book. We're talking about the corruption. Were you surprised when you were working with the DEA how many people in our own law enforcement were being corrupted by the drug cartel out of Mexico? You know, uh, it wasn't a lot that I was exposed to. But there was very few that was popping up, and uh, because of this scuttlebutt that we're getting, that this agent here or this cop here you want to stay away from because they heard from an informant. Uh, I mean, you weren't 100% sure if, if one of these guys were corrupted. But later on, when the evidence was there, then you found out they were removed. They were no longer working okay. as a police officer or as an agent and so on. Um, there, was, I can, there was very few that I know of that were asked two things. You want to continue to work? If so, you're going to be prosecuted. But if you resign now, you know, this thing will go away. And that's how they took care of it back then, because this will look so bad to the American public that there's agents out there, or cops, that are working for the cartel. Does it happen? Yes, it does happen. Okay, when there's money, especially when, let's say, someone has got family in Mexico and he's a police officer. Let's say he's a Border Patrol agent, that he's working across the border and he's a U.S. citizen but he's got family down in Mexico, or family in Colombia, okay? I mean, can they put pressure on him? Let me tell you something, Bill. In those, in those years I worked in Yuma, there was four Border Patrol agents. I'm not a, a Border Patrol agents I worked with. I mean, I'm telling you, I, I do. I really love those guys, and I had a great time with them. But I was so disappointed when I came back that two of them was pending prison time and two of them was under investigation. These are the guys, especially two of them, that I used all the time to help me out. They were great people. But yet, what they were doing, they were turning, the, they were turning their head. They supposed to be in a certain location at a certain spot, at, you know, during those days, and they weren't there. So when they weren't there, that's when the drugs were coming in at one spot um, and, and so on. Was there, was there agents? Absolutely. But the book is, a, it's not so much, I mean, I can deal with that. That's just a way of life. It's not a perfect world. But when you, what I had problems with is when I present the whole package, the whole case to an AUSA, United States Assistant Attorney, because they're, the they're the one that's got to, they cannot prosecute a case without us. It takes the police officers and cops to bring the case to them, okay, with the factual evidence. Now it'd be up to them if they want to plead it out, which we have a lot of say-so to that, okay, or they want to take the trial. Most of them don't want to take the trial. 
because it's, it's too costly. It just costs too much. So they usually plea them out. But not one, but I had three different United States attorneys assigned to this case. Okay? And finally, I took the case to a district attorney right there in Yuma, Arizona. Okay? And when they seen that case, they loved it. They wanted it. And everything I had, I gave the chief legal counsel in Washington, D.C. I knew what I was doing. Okay? I used my trump card, as you said, poker face, because I thought I, thought I was going to have some problems down the road. So I gave all my evidence, everything I have, in a report. And I sent it back to chief legal counsel in Washington, D.C., DEA. Okay? Right. And they overview, they look at everything. And they come back and they told me, they said, Agent or Larry, you got him. You've got this cartel. You got him. Get him prosecuted. So I knew it when I met with the AUSAs in Phoenix. I knew I had this cartel. They were there. I knew everything was ready to go to, in front of the federal grand jury. Okay? I knew that. But yet they declined. Client. Even I, I bought a kilo of cocaine, a kilo of cocaine for fourteen thousand, fourteen thousand five, whatever, five hundred dollars. We negotiate another thirty kilos. On top of that, we negotiate up to five hundred kilos. Okay. Right. But uh, you, we we couldn't get the money for that. I got the money, showing that in good faith we did bought a kilo sample from the bad guys, from the mule. And yet, that one guy that we bought the kilo from. His wife is a school teacher. She drove around her car, the D.A.R.E. program. Okay, this guy was well entrenched in the community. He only served, I think, less than a year wow. in prison. Oh, yeah, you better believe it. You, you, I'm telling you. And, uh, so, yeah. and so I went to Columbia. Yeah, so transferred. do you ever think the drug problem will disappear or at least um, not be the problem that it is today eventually? No. It won't disappear. Only way it disappear, you know, people, I teach criminal justice in a classroom. Uh, there's too much money. It's not the drug. It's the money. Money, money, money. I've seen so much of it and, and what it can buy. I mean, you can buy human lives. You can buy anything you want with money anywhere okay. in the world. Okay? You cannot stop it. Only way you can stop the drug trafficker especially when you get a number of people die last year. Oh, was it last year or year before 68,000 or 62,000 died of fentanyl? You kill the trafficker. You take the trafficker and you take them and you get rid of them. You cannot send people to prison because if you do, they're going to get out, especially the way things are working today. I mean, they're released right away. Uh, look at marijuana. Look, People say, do you think by legalizing marijuana will help? No. Hey, Bill, I hope your audience will remember this. You're out there, whoever is smoking or doing something, or cocaine or whatever, you might sit there and laugh, you get high, you got the money for it. But my experience working down in Mexico and Colombia, there's always that family. There's someone behind that is suffering. Whether it's a small young girl, 12, 13 years old, she's been sold on the streets, okay, because her daddy is involved in cocaine trafficking, okay? Or this young kid is out there in his pit. He's on a kerosene down in, uh, pouring kerosene down in Columbia in these meth or these labs, or meth labs too. Okay? Okay. People in the United States don't see that, Bill. They just snort in their nose or shoot in their veins. But when they do, they've got to wake up and realize how many people are suffering behind that. You know, they're dying and, and hurting. So, and, and, you, and you make the comment about arresting because putting them in prison doesn't do anything for them. But if when you kill one of these mules, there's always one to follow behind it. Isn't that right? Yes, it is. It's not the mule. See, one thing about uh, what I really enjoy my career with DEA, we focus on the people that are uh, the cartel. You work with, you go out, you find the mules first, okay? And then usually uh, mules are hard to, uh, to get uh, testified against their the okay. members out of, of Mexico because of the threats to them. So I have put a lot of people in jail in my career, first career, or being in my career, that were mules. But I was trying to get them to talk. I said, look, I don't want you to go to prison for 10 years. You're going to be found guilty of this cocaine. I want to know who the guy you're working with. They won't do it. They won't do it. They won't give them up because they know if they do, their family in Mexico, Columbia, whatever, is going to be tortured and killed. The people that will give up their family is here, Americans. that never experienced that. When I see Americans, you take a kid. Growing up, you put him in you put him in cuffs. Take a game banger. Take someone that's uh, is, is in the gang. All you have to do is separate him from his gang, okay? And tell him, in other words, he's going to go to jail, which he, in reality he is going to jail. Before you know it, when that door slams, 
And after a few days, they start giving up everybody they know. You know, they start giving people they know. It's always like the first one. The first one that sings, what's the old story, sings like a canary, he's the one who's going to get a better deal. Right. So if you rest five people, the first one that sings is going to get a better deal because he's testifying against the other four. That's how it works, you know. So with, with, with the book and everything, how has the reception been on the book? Has there been people that are, I mean, that say that this is wonderful, you're opening our eyes up to it, or are there people saying, you know what, I don't want to know this. I, I, I am happy living in total ignorance, and I don't need to know these things. But do you feel that uh, educating the public is what's most important? Absolutely, educating the public. I use these books in my classroom. You know, I teach organized crime. I teach uh, 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 criminal uh, uh, law enforcement, uh, police theory. I use these uh, these stories, these true stories of when to shoot, not to shoot, how to survive on the streets, you know, how to keep your eyes alert when someone's approaching you quickly. You know, what I see on TV when these guys are out here walking around the streets and they walk up to a reporter or they walk near a police officer with a gun in their hand, I thank God I'm not out there. Because a police officer has every right to pull this weapon. You, I tell him, I said, you pull your weapon. You don't point your weapon. You just get your weapon out of your holster or wherever you have it and point it towards the ground and let them see that. That way, if they quickly pull their, pull their right. weapon on you, at least you have yours out of the holster. But cops are not allowed to do that. You know, when you have two cops, two police officers that stands there and talk to someone, like what happened there in Atlanta, for 41 minutes, that is not the law enforcement that I grew up with. You don't do that. You don't start letting the spectators, spectators and, and people get around you and start looking. And you're giving this guy all the time to, to do what he wants to do, to think what he's going to do. I mean, it's just it's just way it's been trained today or, or the pressure it's been, on, it's been put on law enforcement, you know, to treat a certain group of people. That's wrong. We all should be treated the same way, you know. But you don't set aside and treat someone differently because if you do – you're going to get yourself right. hurt, man. I never these, these where they're getting hurt. I never thought uh-huh. about it until recently because we're seeing these protests and everything else going on in law enforcement, and for the most case, law enforcement's being re- very restrained on how they're dealing with it because you have people that are waving around firearms. That yeah. if they point a firearm in the direction of a p- police officer, the way it used to be, like you said. They would have the right to fight because they're the the fire because their life's in danger, and I don't think the public understands that they're putting themselves in more danger by doing what they're doing, and because an officer, if he feels threatened, he's able to take your life. Well, Bill, people people say, "Can I do that? Protecting my home? Absolutely." Our founding fathers, you had every right to protect. You don't have to be a police officer to protect your life and your family. But I'm calling you from the state of California. And out here, I tell the students, I said, look, you can be inside your house eating your popcorn and drinking tea with your wife. If you look up and see someone in your side, inside your house, you cannot just shoot them because life is more precious right. than property. That's what they say. But if they commit any threat to you, then you can self-defense, okay? You have to. But in states like where I'm from, Kentucky, or you stand your ground law, you cannot, you don't let people come into your home for no reason at all and, and making threats. But, you know, they sold somebody from St. Louis as uh, uh, a couple, a white couple. Yes. He had a rifle and his wife. Yes. He has every right to do that. If he didn't do what he did, stood there with his rifle, it's hard to tell what those guys would have done. He said about 300 of them. But you notice once they saw that weapon, did you see? They made a turn. And he said, let's go, let's go. They got out of there. That's what's going to happen. But, they're going to continue to push so Bill, they're going to continue to push so far that uh, citizens, you know, the citizens on the right or whatever, they're going to they're going to say enough is enough. But my you know? but my question maybe, to you, Larry, Larry, is and especially uh-huh. about those two people because that's been in the news the last two days, is that the gentleman having the gun I don't have an issue with, but him pointing it first off, he doesn't look like he knows how to handle it. And he's just right. he's just waving it around, and his wife had her f- finger on the trigger of the pistol that she was carrying, carrying it fine, but don't threaten to use it if you don't know how to use it. And I think that's what yeah. I think a lot of people are concerned with because you have a lot of people that have firearms that bought them because they bought them for protection, but none of them have taken a course, none of them have done any type of training, none of them have ever gone to a shooting range. 
and I think and I think that's where someone like me comes into play and I go, I'm a little bit more worried about my neighbor that's never used one before than my neighbor across the street that's been that's been in retired military who has a house full of them and he knows how to use them properly because he knows when to shoot. But my neighbor that's never done this before just bought it because they felt threatened is not going to ha- know how to react. No, that's a good point there, because as I was watching him today, because it's all over the news, uh, he was, he, it seemed like he was just, you know, I'm not going to quarterback. He definitely, he was, a, he was afraid, his wife. Right. I didn't, was that a pistol or was that a cell phone? It was a pistol. It was a. It was. It was a pistol. They. They actually. They interviewed the couple afterwards, from what I understand, and wow. she was explaining the the whole situation. But again, I have I have no problem with owning owning weapons if you're qualified and trained to use them. It's just that I'm worried about people that have. I mean, we all have the right to carry, to do whatever you do. Every state has their different laws on how to do it. But I think before you can start waving one around, which no one should ever wave one around, you should understand how to use it first. And I agree Absolutely. with you. I think the police right now, our hands are so tied that they're afraid to shoot in some situations because they're the ones that are going to get the bad rap for what happened. Well, they are. Yeah. They are definitely. Let me. I've been on that ground many times uh, when I was growing up with DEA. Of fighting with people. One thing the DA would train, you never get into a fight with somebody because you can lose your gun or they're going to grab your gun and right. kill you with it. That individual reach out. He, he Listen, if he didn't point a taser, let's say he didn't have a taser, but he pointed a weapon, it was so obvious that this guy was beating the hell out of those two cops. It was easy for him to take that taser away. Once he took that, what if that taser was a gun? You, in the days where they didn't have tasers. Right. Cops got killed by their own guns. This man would probably kill both of them. He would shot him right there. Yeah. Okay, you never give anybody a chance to, to hurt you. No. Whether he's white, purple, brown, black, yeah. or whatever. You know, your authority, okay, They're, they were very nice to that uh, individual. They didn't treat him no like, I mean, like he was a black guy standing in the corner of his sleep. They got a call to come out there. They were doing their job. And they were very passive with him, very nice with him. But when they told him turn around... I never seen that before. You know, I never, you know, to put your cuffs on somebody, you tell them put their hands on the hood, okay, both hands, come back and spread your legs. You want to control that. They had no control of that, and that's what's so sad about it. Do it you, really is. Do but, you? You know, I, I can't. Do uh, you feel that the reason why it's being done this way is because everybody's recording everything? Absolutely, absolutely. You know, I, I'm very fortunate. I retired about eight years ago. You know, when I put my hands on you, I really mean it. If I tell you put your hands, you got, there's two things here. If I point my, when I point my gun, I point my gun, because I want to go home, okay? And when I point my gun, you better be on the ground. You got to be on the ground now, okay? And it really scared me when I start seeing people no longer, when I say, don't move, get your hands in the air, hit whatever, please. And they stand there and they're arguing with you what you got, why you got your weapon on them. Okay, that is that is what is frightening. And when they start walking towards you, what are you supposed to do then? Okay, well, and, and the other thing I never seen that happen in my career. And the other thing you know? you're dealing with too, and we we go back to the whole drug thing, is you don't know if these people are on anything. You don't know if they oh, take yeah. and they're and they're Absolutely. all their inhibitions are gone. So what they're doing now is they're reacting because the adrenaline's flowing. Going, Heck, guess what? You're not taking me in, and I'm going to do whatever I can to protect myself. And that's when usually a problem happens because they're not complying with law enforcement. And and again, most of the time when law enforcement say anything, they're very calm and very civil. It's just the perpetrator or the individual being arrested is the one that takes right. it out of control. Right, Bill. That's absolutely right. You're right. So, but Bill, I never, I never experienced a lot of that when I was an agent. Yeah, and because I, I, I'm alive today. I'm very fortunate. I, I never gave anybody a chance to hurt me or my partner. Okay, I learned from some of the best D agents, some of the best cops I've ever worked in my career as a new agent. When I came in as a cop and as an agent, and I was very fortunate. I was trained by the best street. You can train in the academy. You get the book learning. You get all this stuff, but you really learn the job when you're out there on the right. streets. And when you're on the streets, man, I mean, it is—it's evil. And uh, it, but today, it's—it's gone—it's wild. It is truly wild what cops and police officers are facing today. Uh, when to shoot, not to shoot. 
And thank God I'm not out there. I, just thank God. I mean, even though they call, ask if DEA want to come back and help out when all these statues are being taken down and this disturbance, you know, I'm a little bit too old now, but <laughs> I, I'm the kind of guy that, you know what, I, I, just, I just can't do it. I can't sit there and just talk to you very passionately and give you a chance to hurt me or my partner. Right. You know, that just doesn't get it. So bef- let him go. Before before we we end tonight, because it's hard to believe we've been talking for fifty minutes so far, is that the second book you wrote, "The Fighting My Greatest Enemy Myself," an inspired story by DA agent. Can you give me a little bit of background about what this book's about? Yeah, this this first the first book, "The Path of the Devil." We uh, we can count up to thirty five people that uh, are no longer living. Most okay. of them were the uh, the bad guys. I uh, you know people talked to me so much about it that the first book, The Path of the Devil, and I, I feel like I left my belief out, my belief, and I do, I, I, listen, I learned a hard lesson that there is a God, okay, worship your God, that there is a God, and I do believe in Jesus Christ. I had to learn, you're talking to a guy that is 65 years old. I've been around, I've seen a lot of stuff in my lifetime, and it took me a long time to realize that there is evil. There is truly evil. I looked at it right in his eyes, but at the same time, there is a beautiful. And I describe that in the book, my experience with evil, uh, where I felt my, my my body that was on fire. It sounds, you know, it's 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 all real. I explain that. Then I explain the time that I was actually looked up and seen a man that was hanging on a pole, and when I looked at his face, it was the light. It was brighter than the sun. Mm-hmm. And I realized what I just looked at with somebody, uh, Jesus Christ, and uh, I was very blessed. I, 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 I just can't, I, it's just incredible in my life that, that he would do that to me, and, uh, and I thank God for it. So the spiritual book, when you see the front cover, you're going to see a man in a DEA black outfit. He's got a mask on, and there's behind there's a cross on a hill with a dove. And that mask, when you open it up, he, uh, that man with the mask, he takes the mask off, and I talk about it my spiritual journey, and uh, there's prayers in there that relate to each story. I want to give something to him, uh, whether it sells one book or two books. I, I, it doesn't matter. I feel like I owe that to him because the first book, that's all people talk about, is how evil and the devil was. Uh, let me say one thing to you. You mentioned to me what was your feedback on the first book. Yes. I don't believe, I, at first, I didn't want that. I, I'm not looking for someone to pat me on the shoulder. But I had somebody that want to call me, a, a Marine, a uh, retired Marine, a Vietnam veteran. He wanted to talk to me because he read the book. And I thought, why not? Let me get his feedback because these are straight shooters, especially people in law enforcement that, that review the book. Uh, he told me, he said, you know, it's a, it is a true story. I said, yeah. He said, yeah, because she lost. I said, lost? He said, yeah, we lost Vietnam because of that, because of all the corruption, people coming back addicted to hash here or heroin, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the dope, opium, and so on. And he, he's a Vietnam veteran. And so I started looking at it. I'm thinking, maybe there's, maybe, there's something, maybe there's something good in this book. And, and I don't have anybody market this book for me. That's why, Bill, you gave me an opportunity, okay, to do this, to come on air and talk to you about this, okay, because nobody else, I don't have the name. I'm just Larry Hart, a boy that ran barefoot on Plum Creek, <laughs> hitting those creeks, and and watch my daddy take my 20-gauge uh, shotgun and blew my dog brains out because he tastes blood. There's so much I learned about growing up, about life itself, and how, you know, cruelty, and yet there's a purpose and a reason why. Uh, I mean, it's just, that's who I am. And I, I thank God every day that, uh, that I live long enough and, and for me to do something like this. But you gave me a chance, Bill. And there's been several others gave me a chance, and I appreciate you of doing this. Well, Larry, I'm glad you were able to take time to do this again. I uh, I actually got more this time than I did out of the first time we talked because we were having difficulties. But um, anytime you want to come back on the program again, please let me know. You're more than welcome to join us again. And good luck with the sales of both of the books. And uh, hopefully, again, we'll talk to you in the future. Yeah, you take care of yourself, Bill, and your audience. Then I said hi, but you take care of yourself. You hear me? I, I you will, live a long life, my friend. I will. And again, life. Larry, thank you very much. It was a true pleasure. It is. It is a true pleasure. Thank you. Have thank a, you very much, Bill. Have a great night. We'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye.
Larry Ray Harden here online with Bill Alexander. His books are available at Amazon.com. I'll share you the links on my uh, on my uh, profile page uh, that's dealing with this podcast and with this radio program tonight. Again, the first book is called Path of the Devil, Camino del Diablo, based on the true events of a DEA agent and two private investigators. And the second book, which is Fighting My Greatest Enemy, Myself, an Inspired True Story, by a DEA agent. So that's going to wrap up tonight's program of Online with Bill Alexander. We have some guests coming in over the next few weeks. Let me get an idea of who they are as I uh, pull out my list here. Let's see. We have, let's see, coming in. Let's see. Next Monday, we have a uh, author coming in. Michelle Blood will be here. And then if you're familiar with the song Ariel that was recorded in the mid 70s, about 75, 76, Dan Friedman will be here on the, uh, I believe, is that the 13th? I can't read my own handwriting. And then former radio announcer and uh, turned singer Sean Casey will be on the program talking about his new song dealing with COVID-19. But uh, until then, uh, we have all this other great stuff going on. I'm glad you're able to join us tonight. Don't forget to check out the website, italknet.com. Again, italknet.com. You can also find uh, the live stream, if you're interested, at italkradio.us, italkradio.us. But you are listening to Online with Bill Alexander at the italknet radio network so uh those of you listening to the program thank you very much we'll be back next time and uh, you've been listening and i've been grateful that you are here so we'll talk to you next time here online with yours truly bill alexander this has been a million dollar baby production for more information go to italknet.com Rumkey is hiring CDL drivers age 19 and up, and drivers are paid based on experience. Rumkey CDL drivers earn $1,000 to $1,300 per week, and more than $10,000 in bonuses possible in their first year. Rumkey drivers are home daily, work in a recession-resistant industry, receive great benefits and performance incentives. Start a lucrative career and apply now at RumkeyCareers.com. Equal opportunity employer restrictions apply. If you've ever been a renter, You know it's stressful to find a place with everything you love and nothing you don't. But did you know Zillow does rentals? It makes the search so easy. They have filters for pretty much everything, so you can find that place that's in your budget, but also isn't a shoebox. Or a place that's close to your parents, but far enough they have to call first. Plus, it's easy to apply, request tours, and pay rent in the app. Head to ZillowRentals.com and find your sweet spot. 
Have you guys noticed that you can't go anywhere without seeing designer this or designer that, even designer furniture? On my social feeds and celebrity homes, it's everywhere. Have you seen how expensive these are? Well, if you want the sofa or recliner or bed that broke the internet, you don't have to go broke to get it. Because Designer Looks Furniture has all the same styles and trends, but without the designer prices. Oh, and they're well-made, too. It's the whole package. Check them out. Designer Looks at Value City Furniture or designerlooks.com. Hear that? That's the sound of a patient whose health data is protected from a cyber attack. And that... That's the sound of a financial system that's digitally secured from bad actors. Right now, there's an invisible war being fought on a digital battlefield that impacts what we do every day. That's why at Paraton, we do the can't be done to help protect the vital systems we rely on. Because if we don't, the alternative is unimaginable. Paraton.